Hi, listeners. Happy holidays. Conspiracy Theories is off this week. So in lieu of new episodes, we're highlighting two of our favorites of 2022. We'll return next week with all new episodes. But in the meantime, enjoy our best of conspiracy theories. And on behalf of everyone here at ParCast, have a healthy and happy new year. Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1947, the Communist Party of the United States of America, or CPUSA, was going strong. They advocated for workers' rights and helped organize labor unions. But by the 1950s, the popularity of their organization was dwindling. The U.S. was in the midst of the Red Scare, and the federal government was cracking down on anyone who sympathized with communist beliefs. It was now dangerous to be associated with CPUSA. Members knew that disclosing their fellow comrades could spell disaster for the movement. And when August of 1956 rolled around, CPUSA members got an eerie feeling. Some people in the party may not be as loyal as they claimed. In meetings, the tone shifted from one of solidarity to tension and paranoia. As contentious arguments broke out, infighting threatened to divide the party. Then, CPUSA members began receiving anonymous letters. These notes outlined their most private secrets and threatened to expose them. Someone was listening in on their conversations, which could only mean one thing. There were spies on the inside. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the FBI's secret project named COINTELPRO. From the mid-1950s to early 1970s, the government used the project to surveil any organization it deemed threatening to United States security. Today, we'll cover the rise and fall of COINTELPRO. We'll see how the program's methods soon extended beyond keeping the country safe from enemies. Its targets grew to include not just communists, but also black civil rights activists. Next time, we'll discuss some of the conspiracy theories related to COINTELPRO's actions, like whether or not the FBI was justified in its spying, or if they intentionally sought to undermine the civil rights movement and even plotted the demise of its leader, Martin Luther King Jr. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Wiretapping. Listening in on a private conversation over a phone line is a long American tradition. During the Civil War, both the Union and the Confederacy intercepted each other's communications, and when alcohol was banned during Prohibition, government agents tapped the phones of bootleggers. Just a few years later, by 1936, the U.S. was watching the situation in Europe warily. Right-wing fascism was on the rise in Germany and Italy. President Roosevelt was concerned that the authoritarian movement would cross the Atlantic and take hold in this country. That year, FDR held a meeting with J. Edgar Hoover, then director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Yet for Hoover, the biggest threat to America wasn't right-wing fascism, it was communism. Communists argued that free market capitalism led to the oppression of workers, and the global stronghold of this ideology was the Soviet Union. More worrisome was the fact that the Communist Party was also becoming popular in the U.S. During the Great Depression, its ranks swelled as Americans watched their government leave workers behind. And at its height, it had over 85,000 members. Despite the fact that CPUSA's main focus was to advocate for labor rights, many feared that the group's influence would cause an all-out revolution, like what happened in Russia. Perhaps no one dreaded that more than Hoover. The 41-year-old director warned Roosevelt that communists had infiltrated universities, the press, and even the government. If they weren't stopped, they could take over the country. Fortunately, Hoover believed that he was just the man to snuff them out. All he needed was unrestricted authority to run intelligence operations. Roosevelt told the director to do whatever was necessary to stop the Red Menace. There was one huge problem with this plan, though. Roosevelt didn't have the authority to grant the FBI power to run these clandestine missions. The First Amendment of the Constitution guarantees the right to free speech, and the Fourth Amendment prohibits unreasonable search and seizure. That means the government can't just buy in Americans who don't align with mainstream beliefs. But for Hoover, Roosevelt's approval was enough. He interpreted the president's go-ahead to mean that he could do whatever he desired in the name of national security. And what Hoover really wanted was to listen in on private conversations. If a communist so much as sneezed, he wanted to know about it. It was well known that wiretapping was illegal. The Supreme Court had already made that very clear. In 1939, the court allowed defendants to walk free because their convictions rested on phone conversations that were recorded without a warrant. Still, Hoover wasn't about to let these court decisions stop him from doing his job. In 1940, he went back to Roosevelt again, this time to get more solid confirmation that the FBI could wiretap anyone they deemed threatening. Roosevelt worried such power would undoubtedly lead to abuse. But in his mind, the Supreme Court surely hadn't meant to hinder national defense. So he gave Hoover the okay to use listening devices on anyone thought to be engaged in subversive activities. Again, this was not in Roosevelt's power to grant. No one outside of the White House and the FBI even knew about the extent of it. Soon after, the FBI started conducting black bag jobs. This clandestine activity involved breaking into buildings and stealing documents. If an organization was affiliated with communism in any way, agents snuck into their headquarters and took membership lists. 
socialist-leaning newspapers were especially targeted. After gathering up names of subscribers, the FBI compiled lists of thousands of people who, if war broke out, would be immediately arrested. While this project seemed critical to those within the Bureau who were working on it, to the outside world, a different threat was taking shape. It was becoming increasingly clear that if there was going to be an ideological conflict between the U.S. and another country, it would be with Nazi Germany, not the Communists. Come 1941, the U.S. was on the brink of entering World War II, so the FBI had to shift its focus away from the Red Menace. Despite the tense relationship between the Soviet Union and U.S., the war meant they were now united against fascism. Through 1945, the FBI allocated its resources, including wiretapping, to subverting Nazi plots and flushing out Axis spies. But after the war was over, Hoover got the opportunity to turn back to his favorite enemy, communism. By 1956, the United States faced a new existential threat, a nuclear standoff with the Soviet Union. President Dwight D. Eisenhower worried about how to keep the country safe from utter annihilation. Hoover was there to reassure Eisenhower, though. He informed the president that, on occasion, the FBI engaged in what he called surreptitious entry. In other words, breaking and entering to obtain intel. Whenever the FBI did this, they wrote in their official reports that it came from, quote, confidential sources. This way, everything looked legal and protected the administration from scandal. This revelation offered Eisenhower a deep sense of relief. He could rest easy knowing that Hoover was keeping an eye on things. And compared to the consequences of a nuclear fallout, the illegality didn't bother him that much, just like it hadn't bothered Roosevelt. On August 28, 1956, the Bureau moved forward and launched a new effort to keep an eye on the communist movement. But this time, the mission wasn't just to watch the CPUSA, it was to destroy it. The new operation was aptly titled the Counterintelligence Program, or COINTELPRO for short. To destroy CPUSA, the FBI believed it needed to attack every part of the leftist movement. Agents broke into the headquarters of various activist groups, planted hidden microphones to record conversations, wiretapped phone lines, and stole membership lists. They even waged a campaign of psychological warfare, which played out in various arenas. To make members feel like they were being watched by their comrades, the FBI sent out anonymous letters and made leaks to newspapers. One couple found that media outlets had been told about their son's arrest for drug possession. Another member was mocked in the news over his wife's purchase of a new car, calling it hypocritical and capitalist. Some people were even blackmailed for their sexuality at a time when queerness was criminalized. Teachers with leftist sympathies were also singled out. Parents feared that individuals with communist leanings were going to indoctrinate their children, so they demanded that those educators be fired. Communists were also relentlessly hounded by the IRS. The agency seemed intent on making their lives miserable through tax audits. The one thing no one could quite figure out, though, was how the FBI even knew who was part of the communist revolution in the United States. Membership wasn't public knowledge. For those belonging to the CPUSA, there was a lingering fear that someone was leaking information. And soon, their worst suspicions were confirmed. Some members found documents that proved their comrades actually were informants. It was a huge blow to the party. Now they couldn't even trust their own allies. In their minds, anyone might be a spy. As it turned out, the FBI was behind this paranoia too. They planted fake documents to make it look like party members were ratting on each other. 
Not only did it cast doubt on legitimate CPUSA members, it also distracted attention from the real FBI informants who'd infiltrated the party. These informants had one mission, fracture the group from within. And to do so, they started arguments amongst members, which broke people into competing factions. Then, the FBI created a fake socialist organization to lure people away from the main party. Overall, COINTELPRO targeted thousands of people, ruining their careers and personal lives. And it didn't take long for the FBI to see results. While CPUSA membership had been growing since the 1940s, this relentless sabotage caused it to lose about 75% of its members. What was happening within the CPUSA was just a microcosm of the country at large. Throughout America, people became more and more paranoid. They thought their neighbors were communist spies. Even those who didn't advocate for leftist causes policed their actions so that they wouldn't be construed as sympathizers. In other words, the program was a huge success. But the FBI didn't let up. Now, J. Edgar Hoover turned his eye from card-carrying members to anyone who backed a cause that communists stood for. And that included civil rights activists. Coming up... The FBI meets a young reverend named Martin Luther King Jr. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1956, the FBI started COINTELPRO, a counterintelligence program aimed at subverting communist organizations in the United States. It used illegal spying techniques to gain intel about the personal lives of thousands of Americans and then used it against them. Agents created a suffocating atmosphere of anxiety so that no one knew who they could trust. It dove down deeply into their workplaces and social lives, which was extremely effective. People left the Communist Party in droves. By the late 1950s, there were hardly any members left. But the FBI wasn't done just yet. For its director, J. Edgar Hoover, the so-called threat of communism encompassed any leftist movement, including civil rights activists. Even before COINTELPRO, the FBI had investigated the NAACP, the most important black advocacy group in the country. Because communists advocated for racial equality, Hoover thought that the NAACP was being influenced by Russian spies. He believed that the Soviet Union was using racial tensions to make the U.S. look bad. To Hoover, communism and civil rights amounted to the same thing, a threat to the status quo. With COINTELPRO, he saw a new opportunity to go after black organizations. 
1957, just a year after COINTELPRO was created, Hoover turned his attention to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or SCLC, in Atlanta, Georgia. The group was the brainchild of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. At the time, King was already a well-known figure among civil rights activists, and his popularity was only growing. Not only did Hoover dislike this status, he also believed that King was the type of charismatic leader who could galvanize the movement. So Hoover started looking for dirt on the reverend, specifically connections that would tie him to communism. One of King's affiliates was Stanley Levison, an alleged former member of the CPUSA. He helped edit King's speeches and writings. And, according to the FBI, he was also subtly influencing King with communist propaganda. The FBI honed in on him as a potential link between King and the Kremlin. Then, Hoover brought his suspicions about Levison to the Attorney General Robert Kennedy. The younger brother of JFK, Robert cultivated a refreshing pro-civil rights manifesto that resonated with the younger generation. Behind the scenes, though, was a different story. As attorney general, Robert Kennedy was also the head of the Justice Department. His job was to make sure that the government didn't do anything illicit. But like those who held the position before him, he wasn't above spying. All Hoover had to do was bring up communism, and Kennedy approved whatever wiretaps he wanted. It didn't seem to matter that these taps were still illegal. With Kennedy's full knowledge, the FBI installed bugs in Stanley Levison's New York office and phone line. They listened in on every phone conversation that he had with King. They hoped this might allow them to catch King in the act of saying something so incriminating that there'd be no denying he was a communist. In June 1962, Hoover expanded the FBI's surveillance of civil rights activists. This time, he set his sights on the headquarters of the SCLC in Atlanta. As a hub for organizing activity, he'd be able to surveil dozens more civil rights leaders. And while all this was going on in secret, things were playing out very differently in public. The civil rights movement was gaining momentum. In August 1963, almost a quarter of a million people participated in the March on Washington. At the time, it was the largest human rights protest in American history. There, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., King delivered his I Have a Dream speech. It ended with a resounding vision for an America where racial barriers did not exist. The speech deeply moved many Americans, but it infuriated the FBI. They hated seeing King's influence grow. Just a day after the speech, FBI agent William Sullivan, who'd come up with the ideas for many COINTELPRO operations, wrote a memo to Hoover. Sullivan called the speech, quote, demagogic, a term typically applied to dictators. Hoover held a similar mindset, so he did everything he could to slow King's popularity. He wrote up a list of everyone in the reverend's inner circle who was a suspected communist. But there was one glaring problem. There was no way to make the document public without revealing that the FBI was spying on the civil rights movement. So instead, he circulated it among Washington politicians. Hoover's document presented King as a serious threat to national security. And exactly as Hoover wanted, such an accusation immediately caught the attention of his government colleagues. In October 1963, just two months after the March on Washington, Hoover came to Robert Kennedy with a proposal, unchecked surveillance of King and the SCLC. Kennedy was intimidated by the power the FBI director wielded in Washington. He also knew that Hoover had been spying on him and his brother, which included knowledge of their many extramarital affairs. With the government still reeling from the Hoover memo that connected King with a number of communists, 
Kennedy knew he couldn't turn the director down, so Kennedy gave him what he asked for. Now, the FBI had permission to follow King like a shadow. They tracked him all over the country. They bugged his hotel rooms. They listened in on practically every conversation he had, just waiting to hear a bombshell that could ruin his public image for good. But on November 22, 1963, a change in America would alter the scope of COINTELPRO forever. As President John F. Kennedy drove in a motorcade in Dallas, Texas, he was shot and killed. With that, his vice president, Lyndon B. Johnson, assumed power. Hoover found an ally in Johnson. The new president loved the thrill of espionage. Not only did he support the FBI's COINTELPRO activities, he encouraged them. But LBJ was also savvy. As a longtime congressman before his time in the White House, he'd learned he could use the bureau to his own political advantage. After becoming president, passing and upholding civil rights legislation was one of Johnson's most prized goals of his great society. And in his mind, that included confronting one of the agenda's biggest threats. So Johnson made Hoover do something he'd never done before. Investigate the Ku Klux Klan. It wasn't the first time Hoover had been asked to look into the white supremacist group, but he'd been coming up with excuses since the 1950s. If it didn't involve communism, he didn't care about it. He argued that it wasn't the FBI's business to go after the Klan, despite the clear danger they posed to society. Unlike the civil rights movement, which conducted peaceful protests and sit-ins, the KKK ruled by fear, intimidation, and unbridled racism. The group burned crosses on people's lawns, blew up churches and synagogues, and carried out lynchings. And by 1964, they were getting more and more brazen. In June of that year, three civil rights workers went missing in the small town of Philadelphia, Mississippi. They were last seen in a car fleeing a crowd of Klansmen. President Johnson wasn't about to let the KKK get away with such an obvious crime. He told the FBI to look into the case. But Hoover resisted, claiming the FBI didn't have the resources. And reprehensibly, he tried to shift the blame of social unrest back onto civil rights activists. Hoover drew his line in the sand. It wasn't the FBI's place to enforce law and order. He wanted Johnson to send in U.S. Marshals to quell the unrest instead. Johnson wasn't willing. He apparently feared that deploying U.S. Marshals would spark an armed confrontation. In LBJ's mind, covert action was the only way to address the situation. The FBI needed to work their magic and defuse the situation from the inside before the violence escalated. His orders to Hoover were very clear. Do to the Klan what you did to the communists. Thus, COINTELPRO White Hate was born. The FBI's new agenda was to infiltrate the Klan. But this time, rather than use wiretaps and bugs, they used money. It turned out getting Klan members to betray each other by luring them in with cash was far easier than expected. The FBI doled out hundreds of thousands of dollars to get intel on the group's activities, a sum larger than they'd ever given out before. One KKK informant got as much as a quarter of a million dollars, which would be close to two million dollars today. In fact, there were so many informants willing to dish that agents bragged about their ability to be bribed. Apparently, Whenever there was a Klan meeting, most of them reported to the FBI the next day. With their plants in place, the FBI then shifted to its tried-and-true COINTELPRO strategy, breeding mistrust. They sent out postcards showing a person peeking under a Klansman's hood. This imagery made many Klan members paranoid of who was watching. 
then, the Bureau buckled down on their search for the three missing civil rights activists. Though the discovery of the activist's car, about eight miles outside of town, seemed to be a solid lead, it was completely burned out, and there were no bodies inside. It appeared someone was covering up for the Klan. Knowing that the KKK's reach into Southern law enforcement ran deep, the FBI worked to find out which police officers were also Klansmen. Their findings were sobering. The Klan had members in the Mississippi Highway Patrol, the sheriffs, and the chiefs of police, and many of them knew exactly what had happened to the three activists. In August 1964, less than two months after they went missing, FBI agents finally learned the truth. The local police had put the activists in the county jail, but they'd escaped. KKK members then chased, cornered, and shot them. An informant led agents to where the bodies were buried. As it turned out, essentially the entire county police force was in or associated with the Klan. According to Hoover, the sheriff, deputy sheriff, justice of the peace, and at least seven other men were parties to the murders. This discovery was instrumental in weakening the Klan's stronghold in the South. By unveiling the ties between law enforcement and the Klan, COINTELPRO White Hate was working. It seemed like the FBI was finally on the right track. But the surveillance on civil rights hadn't ended just yet. Coming up, the FBI takes on the anti-war movement and black power. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Now, back to the story. By the 1960s, the FBI's COINTELPRO program had gone after the CPUSA, the Civil Rights Movement, and, at President Johnson's behest, the KKK. But now, on college campuses across the nation, a radical political force was on the rise. To the director of the FBI, this was just communism with a new face. In 1966, the Vietnam War was not popular. To younger Americans, there was little use in supporting a pointless war. Even more, they didn't want to die for a cause they didn't believe in. Every day, thousands of citizens took to the streets to voice their opposition. Many of them were college students susceptible to the draft. President Johnson was furious. The protests were making his administration look weak, and his approval rating was quickly slipping. Seeing the success that the Bureau had after targeting the KKK, LBJ believed a similar dismantling might happen with a group called the Students for a Democratic Society, or SDS. So he ordered the FBI to infiltrate them. This time, Hoover was more than happy to oblige. Though the SDS had explicitly denounced communism, in his eyes, any group protesting the war had to be communists. Unfortunately, there was a new roadblock that hadn't been in place for previous COINTELPRO tasks. America had a new attorney general. When Robert Kennedy left office to run for Senate, Nicholas Katzenbach replaced him, and Katzenbach was determined to rein in Hoover's use of bugs and wiretaps. 
Katzenbach discovered that in the past six years, the FBI had installed 738 bugs and only disclosed around 20% of them to the Justice Department. Each one was a flagrant violation of Americans' rights. If word got out about any of them, it could shatter the country's trust in their government. The new attorney general demanded that Hoover seek written approval before he could wiretap. Of course, gathering intel this way was still illegal, but the Justice Department wanted to at least know what was going on. When the time came, Hoover requested to bug the SDS's meetings, and the attorney general refused. Times were changing. The SDS had a growing influence on the country's politics, and Katzenbach knew bugging the organization could lead to more problems down the road. The AG's wariness was also a sign that the secrecy the FBI had enjoyed since COINTELPRO's early days was fading. Word was getting around about the FBI's clandestine activities. That year, when lobbyist Fred Black was convicted of tax evasion, he appealed his conviction to the Supreme Court. The subsequent trial exposed many of the FBI's operations, including that they had illegally recorded Black's conversations. The FBI tried to stop the case. A Supreme Court justice even met with an agent to plan out how to blame the bugs on Robert Kennedy. But one of the Bureau's former victims had also made his way to the top. Thurgood Marshall, a longtime lawyer for the NAACP, was personally familiar with the FBI's tactics. He was now the Solicitor General of the U.S. and was in charge of determining which government cases went to trial. So the case went forward. On July 13, 1966, the FBI's surveillance activities against the plaintiff were revealed in court. It made headlines across the country. Hoover was left scrambling to cover the overreach of the FBI's investigations before the whole truth got out. Six days after these revelations became public knowledge, Hoover banned all break-ins, black bag jobs, and intercepting mail. His agents were furious. All their techniques to gather intel were now out of the question. At least officially. In spite of the new bans, though, COINTELPRO continued using these illicit techniques in the years to come. In fact, there were two new campaigns on the horizon. In July 1967, in Detroit, black residents' long-standing frustrations reached a breaking point. After facing discrimination across all aspects of life, they were done. When police raided a party, people rioted, and an uprising broke out. In response, Michigan's governor sent in the National Guard and military tanks. They rolled down streets, treating neighborhoods like war zones. Five days of unrest ended on a grim note. 43 people were killed and hundreds were injured. In Washington, President Johnson failed to understand the events in terms of racial injustice. Rather than confront America's systemic racism, he was convinced that communist agents from Cuba or Russia were behind the violence. So he called on his old pal J. Edgar Hoover to do something about it. Not long after that, the FBI opened up a new investigation called COINTELPRO Black Nationalist Hate Groups or Black Hate. The name of the program said a lot. Whereas COINTELPRO, White Hate, was aimed at the racist violence of the KKK, the groups targeted by Black Hate included the SCLC and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, peaceful activist organizations. This bias spoke to how afraid the FBI was of the next generation of Black activists, the Black Power Movement. Black power groups took a more militant approach than their civil rights forebearers. The Black Panthers, for example, were the most significant organization gaining steam in the late 1960s. They believed in the right to defend black communities from police brutality. And as part of COINTELPRO Black Hate, 
Hoover devised a system to surveil the communities Panthers were trying to protect. It was called the Ghetto Informant Program. The FBI recruited black store owners, veterans, janitors, taxi drivers, salesmen, and bill collectors to report on the general goings-on of black neighborhoods. Like their approach in COINTELPRO White Hate, the FBI paid these informants for their intel. But black informants were paid far less than what the FBI had paid the KKK. Agents doled out up to $400 max. That's hundreds of thousands of dollars under what they'd given the Klan. Their tactics still managed to gather information from thousands of people. Hoover saw this as progress. He believed he could keep up with the new movements. But American society was about to undergo one of its most tumultuous periods yet. On April 4, 1968, in Memphis, Tennessee, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Civil rights advocates were shocked and devastated. They demanded that the FBI find King's murderer. But after several weeks, the Bureau failed to track down the killer. As a result, nationwide riots broke out. The SDS occupied Columbia University and dozens of other college campuses followed suit. In typical fashion, the FBI answered the unrest with yet another COINTELPRO campaign. This one was called New Left. To destroy these instances of youth organizing, the FBI went back to its tried-and-true methods, create conflict, perpetuate paranoia, and sow discord. But the country's left-wing movements were now beyond the scope of anything the FBI had ever dealt with. The new counterculture wasn't just more radical, they were more informed. And they were becoming aware of the FBI's espionage tactics, disparaging young people as communists and threatening to expose their secrets wasn't going to work with this generation. Before long, the nation faced yet another crisis. On June 5, 1968, the frontrunner for president and the former attorney general, Robert Kennedy, was shot. RFK was the pro-civil rights, anti-war candidate supported by most leftists. Many saw him as the future of the United States. Liberal America mourned the loss of King and Kennedy. Hoover, on the other hand, shed fewer tears. If Kennedy had become president, it would have caused problems for the FBI. Though he and Kennedy had worked together to spy on King, Hoover viewed Kennedy's popularity among the young counterculture as dangerous. Yet there was still more violence on the horizon. Fred Hampton, the chairman of the Black Panthers in Chicago, was a smart, driven, and talented organizer. He created the Rainbow Coalition, a multiracial group that sought common causes in civil rights. He was outspoken in his admiration for communist revolutionaries, and he was poised to become one of the next leaders in the fight against racism. At 4.30 in the morning on December 4th, 1969, Chicago police officers executed a search warrant for illegal weapons in Hampton's apartment but they weren't really interested in guns. It was an ambush. They burst into Hampton's apartment and fired 90 rounds as he lay sleeping in bed next to his pregnant fiancée. He was killed at the age of 21. It would take years for the public to learn that Hampton's death was linked to COINTELPRO. An FBI agent had paid an informant for a map of Hampton's apartment and pass that information along to the state's attorney who was colluding on the operation. Because the details of Fred Hampton's murder would be concealed for years, the Bureau continued to operate with relative carte blanche on the project. If anything, Hoover saw it as an opportunity to keep COINTELPRO going. The men he considered to be his greatest enemies were dead. And to his pleasure, the next president of the United States was Richard Nixon, who was all in for spying. He strongly encouraged the FBI to continue their use of black bag jobs and illegal bugs. But in March 1971, the tables turned. 
the FBI's small office in Media, Pennsylvania, lacking proper security, became the target. After scoping out the office, burglars chose a day when people would be distracted by the highly anticipated boxing match between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. It was one of the biggest sporting events in history. And it was a smart choice. No one noticed the eight people slink out of the office with some 800 documents in hand. The culprits called themselves the Citizens' Commission to Investigate the FBI. More surprisingly, they were never apprehended. They didn't reveal their identities until decades after, when the statute of limitations expired so they couldn't be criminally charged. After stealing the documents, the Citizens' Commission sent the files to newspapers and members of Congress. Buried among them were memos on COINTELPRO operations. They described scores of illegal activities against student groups and the Black Panthers. Despite the groundbreaking scope of the scandal, no one wanted to publish it. The info was too incendiary. Any paper that ran it would obviously have to deal with the fury of the FBI. But the Washington Post was willing to take the risk. It was the first time the American public learned about COINTELPRO, and it was their first real taste of the full scope of the FBI's surveillance. It extended far beyond what anyone had imagined. With the Post story out, Hoover knew the game was up. And just six weeks after the break-in, he formally ended COINTELPRO. The end of the project marked the dawn of a new era of public knowledge. The 1970s saw a cascade of revelations, and not just about the FBI. In 1971, the New York Times published the Pentagon Papers, which revealed that the White House had lied to Congress and the media about military actions in Vietnam. And in July 1973, President Nixon himself was under investigation for doing what the FBI had done for years, surveilling. Nixon was now forced to answer for his role in orchestrating the Watergate scandal. Trust in government was all but gone. Twenty-odd years had brought a wave of change. In the 1950s, the threat of communism was enough to justify espionage by any means necessary. By the 1970s, people were tired of having their rights flagrantly violated. In 1972, J. Edgar Hoover died after almost 50 years as FBI director. Through eight presidential administrations, he'd been at the helm of some of the FBI's most sinister operations. For all the change the country had endured, Hoover had ended his career in a very different America than it had begun in. There was one upside. His replacement, Clarence M. Kelly, was the exact opposite of Hoover. Kelly wasn't as keen on illegal activities. He'd never even heard of COINTELPRO until he became director. And once he learned about the program, in December of 1973, the new director sent out a memo to every agent. No one was to infringe on any rights guaranteed by the Constitution. From then on, everything was supposed to be done by the book. And that very same month, the veil on COINTELPRO would be pulled back entirely. That year, the Socialist Workers' Party, a small labor advocacy organization, read files on themselves obtained under the Freedom of Information Act. One document revealed that they'd been the subject of a COINTELPRO investigation. It was enough for a lawsuit, so the group sued the government on the grounds that their rights to free speech and freedom of assembly were violated. The FBI's bugs, wiretaps, and threatening letters against the group became public knowledge during the trial. After that, the Attorney General and Congress turned their sights to the FBI. It was clear that the Bureau couldn't be trusted to police itself. Congress was committed to making them reveal their actions from the past 20 years. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the FBI wasn't keen to provide that information, so the Bureau did what it did best, hid information. Still, hearings were able to move forward. 
In November 1975, Senator Frank Church began public hearings on the FBI and other intelligence agencies. The Church Committee aired even more of COINTELPRO's dirty laundry. There were over half a million pages of intelligence files on American citizens. The biggest shock was that the FBI had spied on Martin Luther King Jr. Not only were the revelations disturbing, they were disillusioning. To many Americans, the land of freedom and democracy was looking a lot like a police state. After the Church Committee in 1976, the new Attorney General put forward the first guidelines restricting the FBI. They stipulated that only targets who used violence could be investigated. Groups could no longer be deemed threatening just because they held unpopular political views. It was the exact opposite of Hoover's policy. It looked like the tide had turned for good. Finally, there'd be some accountability. Which, however good for the future, did little to erase the decades of damage in COINTELPRO's wake. Next time, we'll dive deeper into COINTELPRO's activities against the civil rights movement and examine three conspiracy theories that have stemmed from the project. Like conspiracy theory number one, communists were behind the civil rights movement, as J. Edgar Hoover always suspected. And conspiracy theory number two, the FBI intentionally undermined Martin Luther King Jr.'s reputation in an effort to discredit the civil rights movement. And finally, conspiracy theory number three, the FBI was responsible for King's assassination. When COINTELPRO began, the FBI claimed that they were protecting the U.S. from enemies who could destroy the nation's values. But perhaps... They were the real enemies against progress. Thanks again for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. For more information on COINTELPRO, amongst the many sources we used, we found Enemies, A History of the FBI by Tim Weiner, extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Kirsten Liu, with writing assistance by Amber Hurley and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Anya Barely, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.